Well, hey guys, how we doing? Do me a favor, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. If you need a Bible, there will be ushers coming up and down the rows. Just raise your hand. They will get a Bible into your hands. Um, No hands, huh? Well, good news. That must mean we're ready to study. So it's interesting. I've been saying that same phrase for almost 10 years, ever since we started this church, every service. And quite honestly, it gets a little bit annoying to repeat that every Sunday. But I would tell you, as I stand here right now, um, I wish that that was necessary. We are going to be breaking from the sermon series that we started several weeks ago, where we've been working our way through the last week of Jesus's life, leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. And what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to be teaching through a series that we've entitled, How to Thrive When Life is Scary. And uh, we are doing this, we are calling this audible, uh, myself and Calvin and the elders of our church, so that we can be responding in this somewhat unprecedented uh, circumstances that we find ourselves currently living in. It's interesting, as I was growing up, I was the youngest of five kids, And as the youngest of five kids, uh, by five years, I was about five years younger than my youngest brother. Um, When I got to high school, all the other kids had moved out of the house. It was a unique circumstance where all of a sudden I was part of a big family and then it was just me and my parents. And so what my parents did for their own reasons was they went down to Florida and picked up uh, my aunt, who was 93 at the time, and I became house buddies uh, during my high school years with my aunt Helvy, and she had lived by herself. Her husband had died years earlier, and she had lived in Florida by herself for about 30 years, and I would describe her as um, quirky. And there were certain things that she would do that were a little bit difficult to get used to. For three years, she never learned my name. She would just refer to me as the boy. She would hide my baseball mitt. She would hide my equipment before important games, usually in the dryer. So these were things you learned to live with. But one of the weirdest quirks that my Aunt Helvey had was she believed that when she watched TV, not only could she see what was going on on the television screen, but the people on television could also watch her as well. She believed that it was two-dimensional and it worked both ways, not just her watching the TV, but the people on TV watching her. So she would dress up to watch TV. Her favorite show was Price is Right and Um, Though she liked the show, Bob Barker was really annoying to her because he would always ask her to come on down, fully aware that she had no ability to do that. So what I'm going to do, even as I teach this morning, is I'm going to dial up my inner Aunt Helvey. I'm going to pretend and wish that we were together, and we're just going to open up God's word together. So here's what I would say. Um, As our country is in the process of so many things in our lives feel like they're shutting down, we're finding ourselves uh, with social distancing and having to deal with more isolation than we might normally do. I know for some, uh, without school and without work, if your work has had you work from home or you find yourselves in a situation where your work is suspended, this has been, you know, a real adjustment for a lot of us in this season. And not only is it an adjustment into our schedules, but it is an adjustment into our way of thinking um, as we consider how to best care for ourselves, our families, um, for us here at the church as pastors and elders, how we best care for our congregation and for our community. Last Thursday, and that seems like a long time ago, 
Um, we announced the decision that we were going to close services. That started with um, ladies' Bible study on Thursday morning, and then later that day, we announced that we were going to close all weekend services for the next two weeks. And though that seems logical today, at the time, I believe we were the first church in uh, for sure the area and probably the entire state to be canceling services. And we were weighing and considering how God and the Bible would have us respond, not just to the medical news, but what our government and our leaders were asking us to do. And it was interesting, last Thursday, several of the churches that we uh, told about our decision, they, they struggled to agree, they struggled to understand why we were doing that, but has the rest of the next few days kind of played out last Friday and Saturday. First, they closed the schools, and then large gatherings were banned, and several had to follow our lead and cancel their services as well. And I just want you to know, as one of your pastors moving forward, we're going to do the best that we can to lead well, making decisions based off our understanding of God's Word and how it would instruct us to respond as a church. And obviously, you can't go to your Bible and just pick up a concordance and search under the word pandemic. It's not that easy, but you can look for principles. And as we looked at scripture, we, we asked the question, are there any places that we can go in God's word where the people of God longed to meet, but they could not? Is there any places that we could turn that would give us instruction on how we're to um, navigate a situation like this? What the follower of Jesus Christ is called to do in a crisis such as we're facing today. And so with those questions in mind, let's do this. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians. Find that in your New Testament. Before we get there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. I'm actually going to pick up the story in Acts 17. Acts is the story of Paul as the gospel pushed through Asia Minor. And in Acts 17, we find Paul in Thessalonica as he's establishing the church that we're going to be studying uh, this morning, and it says in Acts 17, 1, it says this, it says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, thank you Greek people for those easy city names, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, his was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. I love the fact that even in those verses, it's saying that he reasoned with the people that our faith is not unreasonable to believe that Jesus is our Messiah, that he was proving to them using the defense of the missing body, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses. So here's what's going on. Paul shows up in a town. He preaches the gospel. And it says in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So the gospel is proclaimed, and it doesn't return void. Uh, people are saved. People believe a church is formed. There should be no surprises here. And then look at verse 5, it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Again, no surprises here. Whenever the gospel goes forth, there is always opposition. And I would just say that if you're going to live your life in a way that you are a light for the gospel, if you're going to try to impact your community and the relationships that you have, with the gospel, 
There's always going to be opposition. It says in verse 6, it says, And when they did not find them, the crowd, this mob they were looking for, Paul and Silas, this is when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down came here also and Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city's authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So just from those verses, look at the motive of the Jews. This is a jealousy move by the religious leaders. They're losing control. They're losing authority. Their religious system, which Jesus questioned directly, is now being undermined by the apostles as they spread the gospel. And so what happens in the city of Thessalonica, what becomes a disturbance becomes dangerous. Just look at the words that the author of Acts uses to describe what's happening. It says that the, they got wicked men, that they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason. And then they went to the authorities and they said, look, this thing's getting out of control. Not because of the apostles, not because of the believers, not because of the newly formed church in Thessalonica, but the very men who were creating the outroar were accusing the followers of Jesus Christ to of being the cause of the problems. So they attack the house of Jason. They take him into custody. Jason looks like post some type of bond and is now released. So just in summary, the gospel goes forward. A church is formed. Immediately you see opposition. And probably my favorite phrase in this whole chapter is when the Jewish leaders say this. They say, these men have turned the world upside down. No, no statement has ever been more true. There is no greater proof. And how could these men have even known that what they were seeing was just the beginning, that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ would travel throughout Asia Minor, then it would go throughout all of Asia and all of the world, even to this day, seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. Look at verse 9. It says this, And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then verse 10 the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So, so here's the question. There's this disturbance raised by the opposition. The church is under persecution. And they make the decision in verse 10 to immediately send Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Why? Why did Paul and Silas leave? Why were they asked by the early church to leave the city and send themselves to the next city to Berea well the answer to that's really clear it was for safety it was for Paul and Silas's safety it was for the safety of those who'd already been arrested and were members of the early church and though our circumstances are different today for sure what we're seeing in Thessalonica was religious persecution once again we find ourselves in an extraordinary circumstances where we've got to decide what is safe and healthy for the church today now we're not alone in this. This is not unique. Throughout history, the leadership of the church has had to balance the safety of their people with the mission of the church. The mission of the church being to glorify God, to make disciples, and to spread the gospel. In the first century, this persecution forced the early church to actually meet in secret. Why? For safety. 
Kristen and I, about five years ago, we visited the city of Rome. Not sure we're going to get back there anytime soon. But when we visited it, we had the privilege of going down into the catacombs, into the graves where the bodies were buried. And you can see in the catacombs from the first century that the early church was meeting in the catacombs. You can see Christian symbols on the walls because those were the drastic steps that the church had to make to ensure the safety of their people. Throughout the history of the church, be it in the face of communism in Russia, in China, in the face of radical Islam or Hinduism, the church has been forced to meet underground. And I'm sure throughout uh, the generations and the centuries, there were those who asked questions, why take these drastic measures? Is this being driven by fear? Are we abandoning the mission of the church? Are we being faithful to what the author of Hebrews said when he wrote, don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church leaders did what they thought was necessary for the safety of the people and the advancement of the gospel. And our current circumstance, though our situation is different, involves the same considerations. Uh, Our case is unusual. It's not that we have to gather in secret Because of safety concerns, the very gathering of the church is the danger. And the fact that when we come together, the danger of this contagion is not that we'll create an unhealthy situation for those who attend, but the reality is that by gathering, we're creating potentially an unsafe situation, not just for the people who choose to attend church, but to all of those in our community as well. So for this season... We will forego gathering for the safety of our people, for the love of our community, and for the sake of the gospel. In Thessalonica, there was a crisis. They were forced to separate. So let's kind of pick up what's going on. I'm going to pick it up actually in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. Follow along with me or the verses will be on the screen. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, but though we had already suffered, it had been shamefully treated at Philippi. So some of you remember this. Paul has been in Philippi. He is in prison there for preaching the gospel and God miraculously frees him from his imprisonment by bringing an earthquake. So he's come from Philippi. He's arrived in Thessalonica. He's been going into the uh, synagogue, preaching the gospel for several weeks. And it says this, that we'd been treated shamefully at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Conflict is not the time to be quiet. Conflict is the time where we speak up as it relates to the gospel. And then I'm going to pick it up in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Look what he says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. I was thinking back over the course of the last few days in uh, this season where I've had the privilege to pastor this church, what's been the hardest part of being a pastor. And there's been some difficult days for sure. I was thinking of... um, Days where I've had to do the funerals for, um, for children or for a young child. And uh, uh, those are difficult times. And I remember when um, I had to stand next to a man. His, his uh, young daughter in her early 20s was 
wheeled out of the house. She had died in her sleep during the night, and um, that was a hard day. And uh, last week, it was interesting for Kristen and I. We were at home. It was a Sunday morning, which is very obviously unusual for us. And uh, we wanted to watch together as Nate preached and the worship team led us in worship. But I got to tell you, even as we watched um, the service last week from home by ourselves, um, love to hear it, love to hear the preaching, but there were tears because there's a part of us that we feel like we've been torn away, like we wanted to be with our church family, but the reality is the circumstances weren't allowing us to gather together. Look at 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. It says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. So today I'm thankful for technology. I'm thankful for the fact that we can broadcast this message and the worship uh, to you even in your homes, though we can't gather. But back in uh, the day of Paul and Silas and Timothy, they didn't have this technology. So they had to send Timothy as a runner to get a report on how the church was doing in this season when they couldn't gather for safety. So Timothy is sent back to Thessalonica. Why? Well, because there's a concern on the part of Paul and Silas. They're concerned that the church is continuing to operate as the body of Jesus Christ in the face of afflictions. And he says this, we wanted to make sure, verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. And then he goes on and says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. And just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. So when Paul was with them, he was constantly telling the church, hey, you need to be prepared. Difficult times are coming. In 10 years of pastoring this church, over and over, I've heard myself or Cal or whoever's preaching saying, hey, listen, right now we enjoy this incredible freedom and privilege we have in this country to gather together and lift high the name of Jesus Christ. But there could be days coming when that freedom will not exist, when we won't be able to gather. The world's a place that is broken due to sin, that this Place is not our home, constantly reminding you to set your eyes on eternal things, not focus on just comfort or kind of temporal pleasure. Paul says to the church in Corinthians, he says, as followers of Jesus Christ, we stink. And to the world, we are the aroma of death. And for that reason, often we bring persecution because they don't like the message of the gospel. But then he says, to some, you give the aroma, you're a perfume that leads to life because the gospel will always save some and it'll be met by persecution by others. So he says this in verse six, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us because we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's interesting as we've wrestled and struggled as pastors on what we can do 
to assist those in, in the body of Christ here and how we help other members of our family in this season where we can't get together and quite honestly, we're isolated. We're, we're limited in our capacity to help. But some have responded and said, how can we help you as pastors? And here, here's a simple answer to that. Give us the good news of how you're being faithful. Give us the good news of what God's doing and how he's using you in this season. A couple years ago as a church, one of the things that we did when we gathered together was we were going through the book of Acts and through the book of Joshua, and we went through this season where every Sunday we started the message part of the service by what we called gospel moves, testimonies of people in our congregation that were being faithful um, stewards of what God had entrusted to them, and they were sharing their faith boldly. They were stepping out of their comfort zone in order to share their faith. And that's encouraging to us when we hear that from you today, that in these unusual circumstances, we believe that God is creating an opportunity for the gospel to go forth in powerful ways. The big idea this morning is this, where there is chaos, there is opportunity. Where there is chaos, there is opportunity. Okay, so I know some of you are hitting panic mode right now. You're like, oh my gosh, how long is this introduction going to go? And if this is how long the introduction is, how long is the message? Well, I'm here to encourage you. I'm not here to torment you. And let me comfort you with this. Our text this morning is only five verses long. So let me get to the notes. Let me give you uh, the first point if you're keeping notes. The first point that we're called to do in this type of crisis, in this season, is to act differently. Look what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. We're going to be in verses 14 through 18 the rest of our time. It says this. It says... We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So the first point is to act differently. Well, what does that mean? Like, I, I, I understand that if this season of chaos is creating an opportunity, what's the best way that we can seize the day or seize the opportunity. Well, he gives us a list. It's quite easy to follow. And if you're keeping notes, you should be able to fill in the blanks before I get to them because I'm taking them right from God's word. One of the things that we want to do anytime we find ourselves in a season of crisis, of persecution, we want to stick very closely to the instructions of God's word because they hold us steady through life's storm. So the first thing in acting differently that we're commanded. You'll see it there in the text. It says to admonish the idle. So if you're keeping notes, I would actually change that a little bit. I think there's a better translation. The New American Standard Version translates that admonish the unruly. This is not talking about laziness per se. The word that is translated idle in the ESV and unruly in the New American Standard most commonly occurs in a military context, and it is referring to a soldier who is out of rank or acting disorderly. Idleness, laziness, it's rebuked in other passages, both in the Old and New Testament. And, and even as I consider the um, changes that we're experiencing in our day-to-day -day life right now, I find it interesting for many in our congregation, you're finding that your current situation or this current um, situation in our country, it's causing us to dramatically slow down. For some, you're 
work is closed, there's no sports to watch on, to, on TV or to engage in, your gyms are closed. I mean, for many, this has brought life to an abrupt standstill. And I'm thinking that God maybe is trying to indicate to us as a nation who does a really good job through technology and through other things, we, we love to keep busy. There's always a distraction And maybe in this season, what God is doing in some of our lives is he's trying to get us to give him a little bit more of our attention. How? Ask ourselves the question, how can we put God at the center of our lives? I've I've found for myself, my ability to fill the quietness, to to, to fill the quiet moments, it's almost limitless. Um, The news is mesmerizing right now. I can sit and watch the developments of this current coronavirus for hours. The president is on every day briefing the nation. There's world news that you can be watching. So what I find is quite often I'm watching news and all of a sudden New York is saying that 75% of their workforce needs to go home or they're bringing ships in as medical hospitals to help ease the crisis and this is what you need to do if you live in New York or Hey, this is what's going on in Italy, and I, I'm so absorbed by the details. Here's the problem. I don't live in Italy. I, I don't live in New York. I, I live in Grand Haven, and though all of it is interesting, what I don't want to do is take this disruption in my ordinary routine and waste it. If God wants our attention, if he's slowing you down, to become more of a focus in his life. Don't waste the opportunity or the disruption. For others, the exact opposite is true. For those in the medical, uh, with medical jobs, be it doctors or nurses or back office, for those who are involved in maintaining our food supply, uh, you're not experiencing a break in your daily activities. You're experiencing an acceleration in your daily activities because your jobs and your roles right now are critical for us to continue to be able to function as a, as a country. And, and I would encourage you in this season, don't break rank, man. Be, be a good soldier. Do what God is calling you to do. Be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Look what it says next. It says, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, that word faint-hearted could also mean discouraged. And in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas were sending Timothy back because they were concerned that amidst the afflictions that this church was enduring, that there may be some who were in losing heart and were in danger of giving up. Note the context here he says to admonish the idols so he says or the unruly so he says listen if there's people that are out of line if they're not behaving how they're supposed to those are people that you need to correct but when it comes to those who are discouraged who are faint-hearted he's not saying don't be corrective with them he's saying you need to come alongside and encourage them remind them of the truth of God's word remind them that God is faithful to his promises we know the church in First, or in Thessalonica, they faced persecution. We know that was part of their story. Uh, the fear was that potentially this would weaken their faith, but they were facing something else too. And I won't take the time to turn there, but just back in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's interesting in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, the Thessalonians were asking Paul a direct question. What happens when a follower of Jesus Christ dies? Like what comes next? And Paul is answering those 
questions just the chapter prior to this instruction. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul is reminding the church that's under persecution and with the threat of persecution came the obvious concern that some might be killed, that there were brothers and sisters in Christ that were dying. And he's saying, hey, listen, in a situation where you're concerned about death, in a situation where you're concerned about persecution and affliction, in a season where we can't meet together, he's sending a letter back encouraging them, reminding them that as followers of Jesus, we have a hope that outlasts this lifetime. So we see that he is saying to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted. You hopefully can see the next thing in the text, help the weak. This is help the weak. When, when it uses that word weak, we really don't know what it's referring to. He may have been referring to those who were weak physically, who were sick among them. He might have been referring to those who were weak in their faith. In other passages, Paul uses that same word, speaking to those who uh, are weak. He, He says, hey, don't ever cause a weaker brother to stumble. Could be that his, it refers to weak. He's referring to some with economic difficulties that were struggling with lack of necessities. So we don't know if it refers to financial. We don't know if it's physical. We don't know if it's spiritual weakness. And and rather than debate which one of these Paul is referring to, I think the next thing that we can do, the best thing that we can do, is assume that it's all three. If somebody is struggling and they're weak physically, if they're weak spiritually, if they're weak financially, how about rather than debate What Paul's talking about, we just respond to the need in all three areas. We're called to help the weak. And the next he says, be patient with all, or with them all. Patience, um, which is one of the fruits of the spirits, one of the evidences that we've actually been saved and been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Be patient with them all. That's the opposite of irritability. Okay, so how you doing with this one? How's your patience right now. I I will tell you, this might not surprise those of you that know me, but uh, patience is not uh, one of my stronger virtues. And what I find is when my um, circumstances are disrupted, when life isn't following its usual patterns, it's very, very easy for me to get frustrated much more quickly. Earlier this week, it was interesting, the traffic was backed up in Grand Haven. This was a few days ago. And what I found was the bridge was malfunctioning. And it was like, I have no patience for this. Like normally, I can deal with it okay. I understand that it's an inconvenience. But in spite of everything else we're going through, my ability to get irritated quickly, um, like it's a thing right now. These are things we need to work at. You have to be intentional about being patient. And then finally, it says this. It says, seek to do good. It says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Our natural tendency when we experience hurt or we experience evil or frustration is to respond in kind, to retaliate. But here's the interesting thing. When we choose as followers of Jesus Christ to repay evil with good, the gospel is on full display. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, And he says this in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Here's what I want you to notice in that last phrase. This is not an opportunity where we only look to do good to our church family, to those in our small group, to other members of the faith. It says, do good to one another and to everyone. So our call in the midst of a season when we cannot gather is how in, we, need to, we need to ask ourselves a question, what can we be doing that gives practical examples of the gospel in our community? How can we serve our community, not just our church, but everyone? And where it says always seek to do good, this is a little bit stronger language than, hey, just at least kind of give it an effort. What Paul's referring to here is that we are to pursue this. We are to strive for it. We are to look for opportunities that will require effort on our part to be lights of the gospel in a confused, worried, and scared world. So first, we're called to act differently. Look what the text says next. It talks about how we can think differently. So Paul's just given instruction, actually a list. Hey, here's what I need you to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And the question that I would have in receiving this list is, how in the world am I supposed to do this? And and what Paul does is he next reminds us that before we can do what we're called to do, we have to think in the way that God would have us think. You've heard us often, if you've attended Harvest, say this phrase, you do what you do and you feel what you feel because you think what you think. And what Paul does in the next three verses is he gives us 10 words, just 10 words to focus our thoughts in a season where life is scary. He says in verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. I'm going to throw all three of these points up on the screen at once. And the reason that I do that is because the way Paul wrote this instruction, he's grouping these things together, telling the follower of Jesus Christ that if you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ, these are the three markers. These are the three evidences. These are the spiritual tattoos that you should carry around with you that give evidence that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Constant joy, prayer, and gratitude. It's interesting. The Gospels never tell us to pretend that life isn't difficult. It never tells us to pretend that the afflictions or the persecution that we're suffering isn't real. That that it's not the call of the writers of the New Testament. It wasn't the call of Jesus. What Jesus is saying is, in the seasons where life is difficult, in times when life is scary, the way that you thrive in these seasons is you set your mind and you make a choice of the will. Be joyful. Be thankful. Be people who are grateful people because the gospel allows us in the midst of agonizing situations because we have the spirit of God that we can continue to have hope, joy, and thankfulness. This is in contrast to our culture that looks for their hope and joy in their comfort and in their circumstances. 
I find it interesting when he says to pray without ceasing, you need to understand in this city of Thessalonica, this was a city that if you weren't a follower of Jesus Christ, you weren't part of the church, you were still a very religious person. There were temples to various gods throughout the city of Thessalonica, and the people of Thessalonica, just by their very nature, by the culture of the city, they were people of prayer. It was not unusual to see these people praying to different gods. But it was interesting, the way that they would pray to their gods is they would come and offer prayers seeking the favor of their god or doing whatever they could to appease their gods so that their gods would be willing to change their circumstances. Very unlike the prayers of the first century church or how Jesus taught us to pray. The the first century followers of Jesus Christ in the face of afflictions, they weren't praying first and foremost that God would change their circumstances. They were acknowledging that God was God in spite of their circumstances. And they were praying that God would keep them faithful in spite of their circumstances, understanding and believing, choosing to believe that God would work all things together for their good. They understood that their God was not a distant God or a deity that needed to be appeased. What they understood was that their God was a God who loved them as a father loves his children and they could approach this God as a child would approach a parent understanding that that parent is after their good, concerned about what is in their best interest. So the early church, different from their culture, would approach their heavenly father believing that God would be God in spite of their circumstances and for that reason, their joy and their hope transcended their circumstances. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Look at the next phrase, it says this, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We, We don't have to wonder in the current season that we find ourselves in what God is asking or requiring of us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Though the reasons for their circumstances were different, Paul and Silas were separated from the church that they longed to be with. And Paul writes, he says, hey, here's the things that you need to do and here's the things that you need to set your mind on. What I find interesting in this phrase, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, is, is why did Paul write it that way? Why didn't he just say, for this is the will of God for you? But why include those three words, in Christ Jesus? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first is this. You're not going to be able to do the things that you're called to do in your own strength. This is a season where you have to submit yourself to prayer and say, God, show me the opportunities that I might not normally see where I can be a light of a gospel to people that are living in a season that's really scary for many. God, help me to understand that when I thrive, when things are scary, I'm being a light of a gospel and showing that I have a faith and a confidence in something that transcends my circumstances. See, without the power of Jesus Christ, we're unable to do the things that he's called us to do. And then please see this too. 
When he says, in Christ Jesus, this is a phrase that he has used over and over. He uses it many times as he writes to the Ephesians, to the Philippians. And here he uses it as he writes to the church in Thessalonica. And what he is saying is this. He's saying, the instruction that I just gave you, the things to set your mind on, the way that you are to behave in this season where life is scary, this is instruction that is given to the church. We're going to respond differently than the world does because we understand that though we can't gather as a church in this season, that the mission of the church needs to continue to go forward. We need to lift high the name of Jesus in worship. We need to be making disciples and encouraging one another, and we need to be the light of the gospel in our community because when there's chaos, there's opportunity. Let me close with this. Just look down a couple of verses. Look what Paul says at the close of this letter. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may the whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So we're in a season, or I'm sorry, we're in a season where our ability to gather as a church, it's been suspended. And I'm watching the news like you're watching the news and it's very, very unclear as I stand here today when we're going to be able to gather again. I pray that it's soon. But here's what I know. In this season where we cannot gather, I'm going to have the same confidence that Paul had, that Silas had. And I want to exhibit the same thing as the faithful followers of Jesus Christ did in Thessalonica. I want to be doing the things that God's called us to do and setting my mind on the things that he's told us to set our minds on. Because I have a confidence that in this season, God is using it to sanctify us. That word sanctify means he is changing us into the image of his son. And one of the things that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, when God says that he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I I am sure that as Paul left this young church. And you saw his language. He felt like he had been torn away from them and he was sent to the next city. He was heartbroken. I'm sure the church would have desired for Paul to stay much longer. And though in the moment they might not have understood this season and why there was the separation and why God would allow this persecution to come in this season we have the ability to look back through history. And what we know is in this season, when the church was forced to endure persecution, when the church was forced underground, the gospel went forward with power because the church had a hope and confidence that the world looked at and said, what is it about those people that they haven't lost their joy, that they haven't lost their gratitude, and whatever they have, that's what I want. God's accomplishing his purposes even in the midst of this storm and the way that we thrive when life is scary is we focus back on what God's called us to think of and to focus on and to do the things he's called us to do. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you um, for the storm. And uh, though life feels very, very different than it did a week ago, and um, there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of frustration in our community, and there's just a lot of anxiety of what comes next and how are finances going to work and what's going to happen in the economy and elections and so many different things that trouble our hearts. Father, you're a God who's in control. And as followers of Jesus Christ, even in this season, we have so much to be thankful for. We have increased reason to come to you in prayer and build our reliance upon you. And Father, teach us to be people that are grateful in all seasons. And I would pray that you would use this season and the testimony of the people at Harvest to advance the gospel, that we would see a season of growth, of new people come to Christ in the midst of this storm because we were faithful to the things that you called us to. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, thank you. You guys are loved. Stay safe. I hope we're together soon.